I'm going to begin in Romans chapter 2, so if you want to turn there, you can. It's a subject you've seen from the bulletin, considering the righteous judgment of God. And I titled it that way because that's really what I want us to glean ultimately, is that God's judgment, in whatever form it comes, whether it's a temp- temporary, temporal type of judgment, or whether we're talking about eternal judgment, which is really what I have in mind, uh, or sometimes uh, we... You know, we'll say, as we'll read the wrath of God, hell, the ultimate righteous judgment of God or the ultimate judgment of God. I want us to see that it is a righteous judgment. Wednesday, I noted that the word righteous or righteousness is used in several ways in Scripture. Remember that from Isaiah 41 and verse 10. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. And I indicated Wednesday night, what a hugely encouraging, comforting expression that is uh, of God's covenant love for his people, that we are held up, upheld by the righteous hand of God. Because God is righteous, he's true to his word, he's true to his promise, he's true to his covenant. If you go back into the Old Testament scriptures and see that how that word righteous or righteousness is used, you'll see that it's, I don't know if it's proper to say a two-edged sword, but it works in two different ways. God keeps his word not only in reference to the promise he makes for his people, he keeps his word in reference to the promise he makes to those who continue in rebellion against him and under their under their sin, in an unrepentant condition. It is a righteous judgment either way. Okay? And so we're going to read from Romans chapter 2. Paul uses this, well, in the New King James, it's translated this way in verse 32 of chapter 1, who knowing the righteous judgment of God or the equitable decree, that that word there is a, it's not used very much. In fact, this may be, well, only one of maybe, maybe a couple times it's used in scripture, but the idea is an equitable decree. This is something that God has decreed and it's just, it's right. The righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things, which he has described, are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart or unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every to each one according to his deeds. The day of wrath, as Paul calls it, 
corresponds to what Old Testament Scripture calls the day of the Lord. And of course, there are prophets that majored on that theme of the day of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 2, in fact, from verses 10 through 21, and I'm not going to read all of those verses, but you have this idea of the day of the Lord, which is a day of wrath, where Isaiah writes, and he's writing here concerning idolaters, proud, arrogant, I ain't going to listen to God kind of people. I'll make my own God kind of people. He says, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Skipping down to verse 19. They, these these idolaters and these haughty, proud individuals, pride that lifts themselves up against God, they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made, each for himself to worship, to the moles and bats, to go into the clefts of the rock and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. Isaiah actually spends the first 30 chapters of his prophecy talking about the wrath and the judgment of God, pronouncing that wrath and judgment again and again against ungodly nations. Now, interspersed in those proclamations are messages of hope, which you will always find in in Scripture. Uh, And we can be thankful for that. And then, in chapter 41, he begins to unveil the Redeemer, the Redeemer God, to the end of, of the book. And then Isaiah 53, Jehovah's suffering servant who bore God's wrath for his people. Paul follows much the same format. You know, in the first three chapters of his epistle, he lays forth the condition of humanity before he ever gets to the solution to the problem. And so he lays out the sin of man and the wrath of God against that sin. And then he brings the solution to our to our minds. The Apostle John seems to draw on Isaiah's warnings Uh, with similar language that Isaiah used in Revelation chapter 6. He said, he wrote, and it sounds a lot like what we just read from Isaiah Isaiah 2, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, here's the question, or a question. I'm going to be asking several questions. Does this message of God's wrath, judgment, and hell contradict the message that God is love? And I think you'll, I mean, those of you who know your Bibles and have an understanding of truth, you you, you would quickly say no. But there is a mindset that seems to work in that direction. Borrowing what what I read from another individual who gave a particular illustration, I would say this, the canvas 
of God's glory, which is revealed in Scripture, is painted with colors that reflect who He is. And all the colors are necessary. This includes, among other things, His delight in mercy and His righteous judgment. The righteous judgment of God does not diminish His love, but actually magnifies it, especially toward vessels of mercy. And I alluded to that sometimes when you're preaching twice in the same day, uh, thoughts overlap, and it did this morning in, in the message. And I brought that out this morning, that, that this idea of, of, of God's glory being shown in the vessels of mercy against the backdrop of of this wrath of God that is determined upon many. And that's the point I believe we see in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, as I mentioned this morning. But listen, God is not arbitrary or capricious or impulsive in His judgment. This is really, really important. And I'm about to, I'm about to cry right now. That's how important this is. Because this is real. This is true. And to ignore it is not healthy. It's not eternally healthy. The point I'm trying to make here is that God is right in His judgment. He does what He does because of who He is. And there never has been nor ever will there be any unrighteous judgment from God. He cannot look upon sin. He hates it with a perfect hatred, right? There is no injustice with Him. And so His triune love, God's triune love, which undergirds the salvation of all who are in Jesus Christ, demands that all that is contrary to His perfection be confined to an inescapable prison of eternal punishment. You will never, ever, should you ever think of God His love as canceling out this inescapable prison of eternal punishment because it doesn't for those who remain in their sin. While nothing can separate believers in Christ from the love of God, aren't you thankful for that? His long-suffering and patience demonstrated in mercy to unrepentant sinners in this life will be forever withdrawn in the day of wrath. And that's really what Paul is saying, I believe, in Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. Don't despise the riches of his... He's actually asking a question, but I think in asking this question, he's, he's confronting you. He's confronting the world. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But if you aren't, if you aren't repentant, if you remain impenitent, as verse 5 says, and in that hardness of heart, all you're doing is treasuring up 
for yourself. Wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And this is the way that God in His righteousness functions. Let me read this quote to you. This is from Michael Reeves concerning this idea of the wrath of God and the love of God. The wrath of the triune God is exactly the opposite of a character blip or a nasty side in Him. It is the proof of the sincerity of His love that He truly cares. His love is not mild-mannered and limp. It is livid, potent, and committed. And therein lies our hope. Through His wrath, the living God shows that He is truly loving. And through His wrath, He will destroy all devilry that we might enjoy Him in a purified world, the home of righteousness. You know, we can think about this in a very finite way. We understand love expressed with righteous anger and wrath against evil perpetrated against someone that we love. I mean, if someone was striking out against somebody that you loved, what would you do? Would you say, well, I love them. I'm not going to stop them. I, I, I love them. I'm going to ignore it. No, in fact, your very love would be that which would move you to do something. That's what holy love does. Holy love does not ignore evil, especially perpetrated against the ones that you love. Now, for us, vengeance, as we talked about this morning, is the Lord's and it's not ours. We're not given responsibility to right all the wrongs, but God will. He will right all the wrongs. But is it really necessary for us to think about something so disturbing and emotionally challenging as the wrath of the judgment of God? Do we really need to speak about this uncomfortable doctrine? Well, if we don't, we are ignoring God and we're not being faithful to make him known as he has revealed himself. It is, in fact, an act of love for us to speak honestly to a world who at best fabricates a God of their own imaginations, right? And puts together in their minds a God that fits how they feel, how they want to feel. A God that's going to satisfy themselves, which is really no God at all. And so I want to think with you for a few moments and leading to the uh, hope, hopefully you'll see, uh, at least you'll be able to believe that God is righteous in his judgment. And then I want to end with just asking ourselves, how should this affect us? We know that Jesus spoke, spoke freely of the torments of eternal judgment, didn't he? We've seen this in Matthew and we're going to continue to see it. And I'm not going to take the time to read all the passages. You're familiar with them. We have read them. And as I say, we will continue to read them as we go through Matthew and, of course, other gospel writings. Surely, if it were not true. Jesus, who was compassionate. He was meek and lowly of heart. Surely, if this which is so harsh and hard and difficult, surely if it was not true, he would not have even mentioned it, much less emphasized it. But he didn't hide the truth, did he? 
He spoke only what his father gave him to speak. He, he didn't even speak his own words. That's what he said. He said, I speak only that which my father gives me. He was faithful to warn. Oh, that you would listen to Jesus. That you would hear Jesus. Hear the warnings that Jesus gave. In His compassion, this one who is meek and lowly of heart, not ignore Him, not ignore God. But there are some, because this is such a difficult doctrine, and it does stir up such deep emotion, and I know all about that. There are those who have chosen a direction called annihilation. And they say that annihilation, you know what annihilation is, right? I mean, it's, it's basically saying that our souls are not immortal. Basically saying that we will come to an end. And some who teach annihilation, they don't say that there isn't any form of punishment, but the form of punishment is only going to be for a given amount of time, and then it comes to an end. So that there is no longevity to this thing. There's no eternality to this thing. And they say that it's a preferable and even a reasonable explanation of God's judgment against sinners. And I would say, in response to that, that it may be reasonable to our emotions. It would definitely ease certain tensions. But is it true? Is it true? Teaching annihilation would require the denial or strange explanation of the Bible, wouldn't it? The warnings of Jesus regarding Hell amounts to very little warning at all if hell is merely annihilation. If the most God will do to me if I remain in my rebellion is vaporize me, then I suppose there's little reason to make that a point of fear. Why would you fear being vaporized? And yet Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 5, But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which, after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say to you, fear him. Matthew chapter 26. and verse 24, Jesus, this is at the Last Supper, <clears throat> the disciples. And he said, <clears throat> when he was talking about Judas, actually. He said, verse 24, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. This is what He said. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That doesn't seem to fit annihilation, does it? It would be good for that man if he had not been born. Born. I mean, not being born and vaporized sounds about the same thing. And, and, and so Jesus is saying more than that. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born because of what he was going to face in the judgment, the righteous judgment. And then in chapter 25 and verse 46, and these will go into everlasting punishment, the righteous into eternal life. The same word is used to describe punishment and life. It's translated differently here in the New King James, everlasting and eternal, but it's the same Greek word. The same word of duration. 
So I would just simply say this, if punishment is limited, so is life. But we know that eternal life is non-ending. It's forever. So is the punishment that Jesus has in view here. Why would Jesus say in another place in Mark chapter 9, verse 44, 46, 47, I think there's three different times he says this, the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Why would he say that if annihilation were true? And furthermore, was the cross of Jesus Christ about delivering sinners from annihilation? Paul didn't seem to think so. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, he said this, But much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. And then writing to the saints at Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he said, verses 9 and 10, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead after His death, raised Him from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Not an annihilation, but from the wrath to come. And then in chapter 5 and verse 9, He speaks of the believers, for God did not appoint us to wrath, implying that others were but to obtain salvation from wrath through our Lord Jesus Christ. The beloved Apostle John, by the way, he is the Apostle of, we, sometimes he's called the Apostle of Love because he placed such emphasis upon love. He's the one who said God is love. And yet he writes Revelation. And in Revelation 14, these very difficult words to read and to really assimilate, to take in. He says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, this is real. The righteous judgment of God is not annihilation. But let me ask this question. Is eternal hell really a just Punishment is the forever and ever. Is that really just? Is it right? Is it fair? And of course, the short answer is, if it weren't, God wouldn't give it. Why? Because God is love, which is perfection. And God is righteous. That is, he is just and right and fair in all that he does. So he couldn't make this kind of punishment the consequence of, of unrepentant life of sin if it were not fair. Now, that's, that's the short answer. 
And frankly, the answers we give are not, I will not try to give a philosophical answer. I will not give an answer that's going to be emotionally satisfying. I, I, I just don't have that capacity. I don't think anybody has that capacity. But we do have the capacity to say that God is just and right and to believe that. But what is bad enough to merit eternal punishment? You know, this question could be asked of practically any punishment or especially the great punishments of God that he has determined upon humanity. What about the flood? Or what about Sodom and Gomorrah? Or what about the Egyptian plagues? What about any number of other things you read about in Scripture? Or even if you see in the world today the expressions of, of horrific forms of judgment. Not necessarily at the hands of people, but at the hands of at the weather. Things that man has no control over. What is it that deserves any of those things? And I would say to you that when we sit in judgment of God, when we sit in judgment of God, the questions never end. Do you hear that? When we place ourselves on the judgment seat and say, now, God, I'm going to hold you accountable. The questions will never end. Did Adam eating a piece of fruit really deserve death? The wages of sin? I know we have our ways of explaining that, but I'm telling you, the natural mind will never, ever agree that the consequences of eating a piece of fruit was just. Would you agree with that? Is God overreacting to man's attempts to be independent and have his own way? Is God overreacting? Well, we must conclude if we believe the Bible is God's word to us, the hell is not an overreaction of God's wrath any more than God sending his only begotten son is an overreaction to deliver many children from the just punishment of sin. I mean, did God really have to send his only begotten son? Was that an overreaction? Surely he would not have sacrificed his own son if it weren't necessary and if it weren't right. In fact, as we know, the only way that God in his infinite and perfect wisdom can be just and justify the sinner, forgive the sinner, is by the very sending of his son. And there you have the ultimate expression of God's Love and really his righteousness, his covenant keeping love. But let me note this, and I think this is important. God's righteous judgment. Remember, I'm, I'm emphasizing this. God's righteous judgment will not result in the same degree of punishment for all. Are you all with me here? Okay. The. The right, because God is righteous, every person who comes under his judgment will not receive the same degree of punishment 
judgment will be according to works. Right? And it will be in the face of, as I think we heard this morning, the light that we have. And so then uh, Jacob's sons had a lot more light than Shechem had. Of course, the judgment is, is, is greater. The, the accountability is greater. And that's true for you and me as well, who have been brought up under the light of truth. Our accountability is much greater. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 13. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And then what we read in Romans chapter 2 um, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous, righteous, righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Hell, the righteous judgment of God in hell will be as severe as the nature and the volume of sin. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 15, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Capernaum, the city who had the, who had the advantage that they had with Christ walking among them and his influence and his works. Did you hear the word more Tolerable. In Matthew 11, verses 20 through 22, again, a a similar, uh, similar idea here. He began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Sinner, why haven't you repented? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Jesus doesn't give sinners an out. Jesus never said that, that, that they weren't responsible to repent, did He? Never. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And then in Luke 20, verses 45 through 47, Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Hell will be equal to the crime. Now, I could make some philosophical statements here about all of that. And and, and maybe they're worth making at another time. But I'm just simply giving to you Scripture. You say, well, I've got some questions about the details of that. We don't have all the answers to the details. 
And we can speculate about the details. We have to, we have to respond to the light that's been given to us. And the light that's been given to us leads us to conclude that, that the judgment of God, the wrath of God that's poured out and the, and the, the hell that is the result of that righteous judgment will equal the crime. There will be no injustice in God's judgment. And by the way, lest I forget to mention it at a, another time, this is one of the true realities that brings some sense of stability to my aching soul at times. There's times when I think about those who are nearest and dearest to me, if they remain as they are, and I think about this subject, I can hardly stand it. And the thing that brings me some sense of peace is knowing that God will not do what's wrong. That God is right. And I will glorify Him. We actually have examples in Revelation where there is praise being given to God as He pours out wrath. And even though my mind has difficulty with that at this point, I know it won't in that day. Hell will be, in one real sense, exactly what every sinner wants. And maybe I'm saying too much here. Maybe I'm going too far. What am I saying? Sinners, hardened in their sin and their unrepentant spirit and their hardness of their heart. What is it that they want? They want God to leave them alone. In one sense, they, many of them anyway, come to a point where they, they do not even recognize, at least they don't acknowledge, that they even need God. And they would be just as well off if God did not exist. And so what I would say to that is there is a sense of if I were separated from the goodness of God, I would know no difference from what I know in my life right now. And what I'm saying to you is if you continue with that thought, if that be your thought, or if others that we speak to, if it's their thought, they will find out one day what it's like to be separated from the goodness of God. Unbelievers will find out when the righteous judgment of God is announced against them, they will find out what it's like to live separated from mercy, from goodness, from the kindness of God. And here's the, here's the thing. There will be no change of heart in hell. I suppose we might argue that if there were a change of heart in hell, if it was a possibility of a change in, of heart in hell, maybe there would be a change or a shortening of the judgment. Maybe we could reason that way. I say that's philosophical thought there. But what I see from Scripture is that, that men will not change their minds concerning their animosity and the resistance against God, even under the harshest judgment. In Revelation 16, verses 10 and 11, it says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Now, this is not hell. This is an outpouring of judgment upon the earth, the wrath of God upon the earth, prior to casting into hell. But think about it. 
if that were happening, wouldn't you imagine that there would be some response like like that's going to move me to respond in a repentant way? Right. Well, the next verse says they blasphemed the God because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. I think there will be a, a continual digression. That's a, that's a point I think I make here before we're done. Yeah. By the way, I will allow for questions when we're when we're done here. And and then in verse twenty one of Revelation sixteen, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. There was no repentance. This is the expression of an unregenerate heart. Men's hatred for the true and the living God will not change in death or in hell. And I think you know, that's kind of the idea. If your hatred is, is there, it's going to continue and it will increase. As heaven will be a place with only righteousness, hell will be a place with only unrighteousness, coupled with everlasting punishment. And brethren, I can't, I can't imagine that. I just can't imagine that. I don't want to imagine that. Well then, should God's righteous judgment, wrath, hell, be a topic among believers? Should it be a topic that we put before the world of unbelievers? Well, let me answer, give my answers to this and kind of wrap this up and then see if there's any comments or questions for believers. I don't know if you've recognized this, but just about every epistle that Paul wrote, and he's writing to churches, primarily he does write to some individuals, but churches, just about every epistle references God's wrath as something from which we have been saved. And also continues upon unbelievers. So you can't read and discuss Scripture without talking about it, right? I mean, you just can't. You, you have to just not read some scriptures. Skip over it. Certainly. I mean, what should be our attitude, believer? What should be our response? Certainly, we should give thanks for God's great love, sending His Son to be the propitiation for our sins and delivering us from the wrath to come. Right? We should be encouraged that Justice will be served against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, much of which has been aimed at God's people. But you see, there's a bit of tension there. I mean, you remember when Stephen was being stoned. And he said much what Jesus said, Father, forgive them, right? He asked, I mean, there was this, this, this pity 
He wasn't saying crush them. Now, the disciples said that one time. They said, you want us to call fire down from heaven upon these cities who are rejecting you? Jesus said, you don't understand what you're saying. That's not why I came. Not, Not this time. But justice will be meted out in the day of judgment. And we can be thankful for that, that there will come a time when all is restored and the goodness and the mercy, the great love of God will restore this planet, this place. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth and there will be no unrighteousness at all. But brethren, this truth should produce grief over those who are bound for God's righteous judgment. I can assure you, I found no delight in preparing this. Maybe you're the kind of person where you could find delight in preparing this kind of lesson or message. Friday, I probably spent at least an hour. I had to close my blinds. I didn't want anybody to see me. I totally overwhelmed with grief. Totally overwhelmed. With grief. Because you see, this isn't just some sort of abstract idea. This touches faces. This touches people that we know and love. Right? But there ought to be a sense of urgency to warn sinners. And I know. I know that we have warned some, and we don't just keep warning, keep warning. There's a time at which we, we just pray, 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 like Paul did. But do you really believe that this is true? Because if we don't really believe this is true, it's really not going to affect us too deeply. And we're not going to really see the need to warn anybody of anything, because after all, is it even true? Is it really necessary then to speak of God's righteous judgment in our evangelism? Isn't it enough simply to speak of Jesus' sacrifice for sinners? And that's a question that probably needs some further discussion than what I'm going to give it here, but As you read the Scriptures, especially in the book of Acts, but in other places, every gospel presentation, and even in the ministry of Christ, every gospel presentation does not include a reference to judgment or hell. But it is certainly one of the motivations for evangelizing. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 42, Peter said, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is He who was ordained by God to judge To be the judge of the living and the dead. You remember Paul when he spoke of uh, Mars Hill. uh, He said he he spoke of of God's judgment by which he was going to judge the people by that one whom he raised from the dead. Remember that? 
Acts 24 and verse 25, when Paul was before the kings, the leaders of the land, Felix, in this case, now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And Paul didn't say you have no reason to be afraid. But I'll tell you what Paul's heart was like later on in that same chapter as he's before Agrippa. I think it's that same chapter. Maybe not. But when he's before Agrippa, when Agrippa said, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. You know what Paul said. I wish that you were not almost, but altogether such as I, yet without these bonds. Interesting. Second Corinthians 5, 10 and 11, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing, therefore, the fear, the terror, Of the Lord we persuade men. But we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. This is true. There is hope for every repentant sinner. There is hope because God sent His Son to bear in Himself that which you otherwise would bear, separated from Him. This is why over and over again in Scripture and in our preaching we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved to what? Well, I would say this, that what is the real issue What is the real issue in evangelism? What is the real issue? Is the real issue hell? Is the real issue the wrath of God? Is that the real issue? The real issue is sin. Sin against God. That's the real issue because that's the the consequence of sin is the judgment. There would be no hell. There would be no wrath. There would be, you know, God is provoked to wrath. And it's sin that does that. No one will ever be scared into the kingdom. So we should never talk about hell and wrath and judgment thinking that that's going to scare somebody into heaven. It won't do it. It might be. In fact, I think, Josh, in your testimony, you mentioned that your concept of God and even hell had an effect upon you, right? Uh, when you were younger. But not unto salvation. No, it's seeing the goodness and the love of God in Christ that leads a sinner, a sinner to repentance. And so that's what you need to see. But rest assured that God's judgments, if you remain as, if any of us remain as we are born into this world, God's judgment is 
right. His mercy endures forever. And His mercy endures forever actually includes judgment. Read Psalm 136. Psalm 136. That's that psalm where every verse ends with, For His mercy endures forever. He destroyed the chariots. He destroyed Pharaoh. For, because His mercy endures forever. His mercy for His own means judgment for those who aren't. I say means, it leads to, it impacts judgment toward others. Ultimately, to remove everything that is contrary to God and His people who will then dwell forever in a new heaven and a new earth. Any questions or comments?